Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we've got a guest on today to discuss one of the most thorny issues in the Old Testament. Why is the Old Testament God seemingly so violent? How could God in the Old Testament command genocide? Well, in this bonus episode, I get a chance to talk to Biola professor Charlie Trim, who actually teaches a class at Biola on this very topic. And his goal is not to give a specific answer, but to walk through different options and approaches Christians take so we can be thoughtful about approaching this tough question. So we have talked about this before in the past, but we're going to go into more depth on this because this was actually first an interview on my YouTube channel, which is in partnership with the Talbot Apologetics Program. So it's a little longer and has a little more depth than a typical Think Biblically episode, but I think you're going to find it. It's right in line with what we typically cover here. So enjoy, and we hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend. Hey friends, we are glad you're with us. We are talking about a really difficult topic today, which is violence in the Old Testament. And I don't know anybody more qualified to discuss this than my friend and colleague at Talbot School of Theology, Bible University, Dr. Charlie Trim. Dr. Trim, thanks so much for coming on and discussing this. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, for those who might not be familiar with you and your work, the reason I said you're so qualified is you actually teach a class for our Bible students here at Biola, and the title is Divine Violence in the Old Testament. So you've been teaching this, you've been talking about this, and you're working on a book that's probably still a year or two out where you walk through and really address some of these questions. So that's why, for those watching, he is very qualified to help us think through some of these difficult questions. Now, to give you a heads up, we're going to take some of the questions. Uh, I imagine as soon as we start talking about the God of the Old Testament, quite a few you will have some questions here. And we will take those throughout uh, some of this interview. But we're going to walk through a very unique approach that Dr. Trim takes to violence in the Old Testament. And I think when you see some of this approach, a lot of your questions will be answered through this. So let's begin. I'm just curious, of all the things you could study about theology in the Old Testament, why did you start with, or why are you focusing on violence in the Old Testament? That's a great question. I didn't intend to start there. Uh, When I was writing my dissertation, my topic originally was intertextuality, which is a big word for saying how one book refers to another book. And so I was going to work on how Deuteronomy refers to numbers, but that's still way too broad. And so my mentor, Dan Block at Wheaton, uh, we decided to focus on something. And since I have a history uh, in military, my parents are military. I was interested in military history growing up and so on we decided let's work on the warfare text. And so that was my original topic. But by the time I was done, intertextuality had completely disappeared and was all about warfare. And so my topic ended up being uh, Yahweh as the divine warrior in the Exodus narratives. Hmm. Uh, And then a few years after that, I wrote a book that I wish I had when I was writing the dissertation, which was uh, a survey of warfare in the ancient Near East. So it's this massive 700 page, basically reference work on warfare on ancient Near East. Um, And then ever since then, of course, when you read Old Testament, the ethical issues come to the fore. And so I've been thinking more and more about those in recent years. 
Well, a lot of the books that I've written are the books that I wish I had as well. So if you're teaching this with students, it makes sense that you would write this book. So I think it's a very unique approach that's going to give kind of a fresh perspective of thinking about violence in the Old Testament. Now, before we jump into that, let me ask you this question. There's a huge cultural gap between where we are today and the cultural gap of the ancient Near East and the Old Testament. What do we need to know about the culture of that time in terms of ancient warfare to at least begin making sense of some of these texts that have violence in them? Yeah, there's a lot that could be said there. I just want to keep it short and just say warfare is common in the ancient Near East, and it's local. It's not something you just hear about. Most people in the ancient Near East will have seen warfare firsthand in their lifetime, most likely multiple times. And so as hmm. you think about warfare in the ancient Near East, people see this, people experience it. Uh, it's something that's close to them. Uh, and so it's not something distant. It's not something you hear about. Uh, it's something close by. So there's a lot more could be said, but I think that's an important point as you start thinking about warfare. That's interesting today because it can feel like warfare, at least for Americans, is out there and it's somewhere else. But you're saying most generations saw it, they experienced it, and this was a personal part of their daily lives. Very much so. Okay. That's great. Uh, th there's huge debate, and I and I believe you take somewhat of a controversial position on this about whether or not some of the wiping out of, say, the Canaanites, for example, should be called genocide. And what you've said to me in conversation is that a lot of people who are quick to say this is not genocide haven't really actually studied what genocide is and familiar with that literature. So tell us where you land on that question and why. Yeah, so there's an entire field of study called genocide studies. Uh, and so if you feel like you're too happy in life and you get somewhat depressed, you can go ahead and read some of this material. Uh, it's just super depressing. Uh, but when we study violence in the Old Testament, I think this is a field that you need to engage with. And most biblical scholars have not been engaging with that kind of material. And genocide scholars, when they read the Old Testament, they just assume this is genocide. We're not even going to think about it. Uh, the argument I make uh, in an article that's coming out in a genocide studies book about the ancient Near East is that the the heart definition of genocide doesn't really fit the ancient Near East. So genocide is not just about numbers. It's not about killing X number of people. It's about killing a group of people because of something about their identity. So maybe it's race, ethnicity, mm. religion, something along those lines. And you don't really have that in the ancient Near East. You don't have, say, the Assyrians coming in and killing a group because they're a different religion or because they're different ethnicity. Um, they will conquer people because they don't give them money or because they have rebelled, but it's not in the sense of genocide in modern terms. And so I don't think in ancient Near East you have something that fits the modern term of genocide. Now, I don't argue that for apologetic benefit because I think if you are looking for genocide in modern terms, probably the closest thing that you're going to see is the book of Joshua. And so mm. if you're going to see it anywhere, it's probably going to be there. But I think it's helpful for us to know that the term genocide has a meaning, and that meaning doesn't quite fit in the ancient Near East. That's really helpful to look at what was taking place three, 4,000 years ago plus, and how many of the factors have changed compared with Nazism or the other modern genocides had very, very different motivations than in the past. So we should be careful using that term. I think that's a great qualifier. 
Uh, by the way, I see a great question from Tom over here. And Tom, if you will hang on, we are going to get to the heart of your question. I think a lot of the questions that are going to come up when we talk about Old Testament violence, we're going to start systematically working through. Uh, so hang in there with us because we're going to give you kind of a framework for approaching this. By the way, those of you who join us, this is brought to you by Biola Apologetics. Make sure you hit that subscribe button because we have some other interviews coming up you are not going to want to miss, including with people like William Dembski, talk about an update on kind of the intelligent design movement. All right, before we talk about some of the different approaches to how God could allow this violence, what do we actually know about the Canaanites? Who were these people? What does the archaeology and the text show? Yeah, so the, the name Canaanite starts showing up about 1400, 1500s in extra biblical texts, uh, and then they continue as a people group up until, say, 800 B.C., so uh, they're well-attested outside the Bible. Uh, they seem to be not necessarily uh, a group with one king. There are various groups that together are called the Canaanites. Uh, in biblical terms, uh, there is a person named Canaan who is the son of Ham, uh, and that goes back to the very weird story about the curse of Canaan back in Genesis. Um, which often gets mixed up with the, the racial stuff, which I think is completely ridiculous. I don't know how you get racial implications out mm -hmm. of that. Um, but there is that curse on Canaan, uh, and then from him come the Canaanites uh, that we see in the biblical text. So we don't know a lot about them, uh, but what we see in the Bible does tend to match relatively what you see archaeologically and historically. Now, I think most people are familiar with this, but in the book that you've written, you sent me kind of an early draft about this, and you lay out exactly what the challenge is morally for the Jew or for the Christian who takes these scriptures seriously. And I love that you started that way because you're not trying to just brush this away. You're willing to take this head on and talk about, honestly, what are our options? So what really is the heart of the moral challenge uh, that this raises for Christians, ethically speaking. And then let's start diving into your book. Yeah, so the heart of the problem is you have God apparently commanding something that looks a lot like genocide. So even if we don't use the word, it still looks like it. And so if we're going to say that God is love, God cares for people, God is compassionate, how can this same God then command mass slaughter? How do these mm. things fit together? And so my book, what I try and do is divide into four categories, the various ways that scholars have approached this problem and different ways of solving that problem. So let's talk about that. I think the tendency among Christians might be to just push this away and not appreciate how challenging and difficult of a question this is. And I think skeptics might be quick to just say, oh, there can't possibly be an answer. God is evil and dismiss it. And you're calling, you're saying, let's be a little bit more thoughtful about this. So frame, we're going to get into each of these four options, but broadly speaking, what are you doing in the book that makes it unique to thinking about this question? Now, to some extent, what makes it unique is I'm not arguing for a position. So I'm not going to tell you this is the right answer. But instead, I'm going to give you four different views and various subcategories within those views and tell you the benefits of each view as well as the cost. What are you going to give up? What are you going to suffer if you take that view? And so my idea is not to convince you that I have the right answer, but just to say, here's the options. And I think several of these options are good mm. uh, and you can kind of work through them for yourself. Well, I'm an apologist, so I'm asked these questions that I often give an answer, but I love as a professor, you're saying, let's slow down 
and let's give the options evaluate the strengths and the weaknesses. By the way, I see a great question about what you think about Paul Copan's work. Hang in there. We will get there because this is tied to one of the four options. So let's start with the four options. And option number one, when, say, somebody's approach with these warfare texts in the Old Testament is just to reevaluate God. What is that option and who takes that option today? And so the first option is a view that says, I read the Old Testament, I see violence, and I see God connected to it. I'm not going to try and distance God from the violence. I'm not going to try and defend God from this violence. I'm just going to say, that's a violent God. And because he's a violent God, I'm going to reject not only the Bible, I'm going to reject God altogether. And mm. so this is a, an atheistic approach where you see the violence, you take it literally, you assume it is indeed connected to the God as described in the text, and you say, that is not a God I can serve in any way. And you just reject it entirely. And so this is a, a pretty common view, I think. Uh, most famously, it's connected with the New Atheist, uh, Richard Dawkins in particular, uh, but many others would follow something like this. So what would your response to that position be? Because some of the responses in here clearly you don't take because you're a Bible-believing Christian. I would guess that this would be the one that you would disagree with the most, maybe, because it rejects the existence of God entirely. What would be your pushback to the new atheist position that just quickly... And by the way, I actually do understand the sentiments of somebody who looks at the Bible and sees this kind of moral commandment. I think anybody who's not jarred by this isn't at least being honest with themselves how tough of a passage that is. So I get the temptation from many atheists and non-believers to dismiss it, but obviously I don't ultimately agree with it. What's your pushback on that position, option number one, reevaluating God? Yeah, what I talk about for the cost here is it's a pretty significant cost for many people, especially if you grew up in the church, you're going to lose community. And there's probably going to be some kind of existential crisis of, so what's the meaning in life now? What do I do? And so on. But intellectually speaking, I think there's a parallel problem for the atheist of questioning, so why are you then concerned about genocide at all? Like, where does human value come from? Why do you have a problem with people being killed? And of course, an atheist is going to have replies to it, but it's just a, a way to show, it doesn't matter what position you take, you're going to have problems. And it's a question of thinking through how do you respond to these problems. And so when I, as a Christian, offer responses to the problem of God's commanding violence, it's not like the atheist doesn't have a problem that they're not responding to. They present their own defense of why human lives matter and so on. That's a really helpful way to look at it, because sometimes we're told that these passages just raise trouble for the Christian, and they do. But what you're arguing is, wait a minute, if you dismiss this and the God with it, we're still left with questions of where does human value come from? Because presumably wiping out people is wrong because humans have value. And then second, where does this moral standard come from? Where does justice come from? And what does this mean for the kind of universe that we live in? So I think that's great. That's some of the stuff that Paul Copan has also pointed out saying, wait a minute, by what basis is the atheist even judging this as being wrong if there's no objective moral values and duties. So I think that's a very, very helpful response. All right, let's take a look at the second response, which you call reevaluate the Old Testament. And there's a few subcategories in here. So maybe frame out for when the first one is to reject the God of the Old Testament. Second option now is to reevaluate the Old Testament itself. What does that mean or look like? So this category says, I see violence in the Old Testament. 
But, and I'm not sure about that. So I want to remove that violence. I don't want to be connected to that violence. But I still like God, and I still like Jesus. So I want to keep the theism. I want to keep the deity. I want to keep at least the majority of the Bible. And so this view finds a way to disconnect God and Jesus from the violence in the Old Testament in some way. And there's a variety of ways of making that disconnect between the two. Okay, let's talk about a range of those varieties. So this is somebody who would say they're still Christian, still believes in Jesus, the resurrection, but in some fashion wants to remove the violence of the Old Testament because they can't believe that Jesus would embrace that kind of God. So Kent Sparks, for example, questions the historicity of these violent texts. What would that view entail and what would be some of the challenges for that perspective? Yeah, so Kent Sparks and most historical critics would say uh, most of the book of Joshua does not reflect true history. And so you can appeal to archaeology and uh, historical texts and say, I don't think this text ever happened. Uh, this was a text written later saying during the time of Josiah or during the exile. And so we're not talking about actual Canaanites. We're not talking about actual cities. This is something else. And so the idea then is we've solved the ethical problem because no one's dying. Like these events didn't happen. Uh, and so it's on, the, it's on the one hand, a very easy solution to it by just denying the historicity of the events. Now, obviously, you don't take that position. So what would be the downside or the trouble, at least, of denying the existence of those events? Yeah, the downside is I'm not really sure that defense even works ethically, because even if the events didn't happen, the ancient Israelites still told their stories in this manner. And so the ethical problem, I think, mm. remains. There's, there's an ethical problem by means of the stories themselves, even if you disconnect it from history. And so John Collins and other people have talked about this. This doesn't really solve the ethical problem. If you, Even if it's just a mythical, fictional story, you still have, have people talking about something that sounds very much like genocide. And so I think in that sense, you haven't actually solved the problem beyond all the problems I have as an evangelical with denying historicity and denying parts of the Old Testament and so on. But I think even on the terms of historical critic, I'm not sure that argument works very well. Those two approaches are helpful because you helped me extensively more than anybody in the section of evidence that demands a verdict, walking through the evidence for, say, the exodus, for the conquest. And it's not as strong as some people may like, but also can't simply be dismissed. A case can be made for this. So denying the historicity is going to bump up against some of the historical data that is there, for example, for the conquest. But second, even if it didn't happen, these texts teach and act as if it did and as if that is moral, so it doesn't remove the problem of the text. And I guess you could say, particularly, Jesus embraced and viewed the Old Testament as being true, so yeah. it would still seem to bring Jesus into this, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, let's move on to segment. So we're still on option number two, where we, uh, the option two, for those who are just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Charlie Trim about four core options that Christians have, or really four options as a whole, to take to the violent texts in the Old Testament. Option number one is kind of the new atheist approach that just says we reject that God, but you showed that that has some problems as well. Where do we get justice and human value from if you're quick to dismiss the existence of God? Option two is we say, let's reevaluate the Old Testament. Maybe these historical events didn't happen. There was no conquest. But as you said, the scriptures sure teach and act as if it did. Now, within option number two, 
there's another one that says, why can't we read the Old Testament, uh, what's often called Christocentrically? And I believe this is a position that, say, Greg Boyd would take. What does that mean? And again, what are the strengths and weaknesses to that approach? Yeah, Greg Boyd and Eric Seibert are the two main proponents of this view and have spoken extensively on it. The idea here is that we really like Jesus. And as evangelicals, we're all on board with this. We like Jesus. And the Gospels say, if you want to know what God's like, you look at Jesus. And so Jesus is the perfect image of God. Well, Seibert and Boyd say, well, pay attention. Jesus is pretty pacifistic. He doesn't beat up a whole lot of people. Uh, There's not a lot of violence going on in the Gospels. And so therefore, if you want to know who God truly is, you see the pacifism of Jesus. Therefore, God is non-violent. It's at that point that Boyd and Seibert go two different directions. So Seibert says, we then use that lens to help us see what's wrong and what's right in the Old Testament. So he talks about the difference between a textual God and the actual God. So okay. the parts where God is violent in the Old Testament, that's the textual God. That's the part you reject, because we now know that's not actually God. The actual God is nonviolent. Uh, and so he uses that to remove various portions. Uh, Greg Boyd uh, is a little uncomfortable with that. And so he says what's going on is, is not just a removal of that, but instead what God does is he... He doesn't. He never acts violently himself, but he removes his protective hand and allows evil beings, whether evil spirit beings or evil humans, to do violent deeds. And so he thinks these violent deeds actually happen, but it's never God doing it himself. It's God removing his protective hand and allowing these violent actions to happen. But the core mm. for both of these scholars is Jesus is pacifistic. Jesus reveals God, therefore God is nonviolent. So there's a bunch of assumptions there. Number one is that Jesus is pacifistic, and we won't debate that, but that would be an approach that would shape how you view the Old Testament. Um, the other approach is, it's interesting, is how, how would, would Boyd respond to like, this doesn't seem to be what the text teaches. The text doesn't say, if you read it, that God removes his presence and they just do this by their own merit. The text reads as if God is commanding them to do this. I could imagine a few different ways he would respond, but what would his response be? Because I know he wants to honor the text and the scriptures. Where would he even go with that? Well, he does have some examples in the Old Testament that are clearly in line with his view. So God allows the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer Israel and Judah, for example. So okay. clearly he's correct quite, quite often. Uh, where I would contend with him is perhaps saying, can you really fit everything inside that box? Uh, and trying to say, say like the plagues or violence connected with Ark of the Covenant and so on. Are we really going to say all of that is demonic? Uh, it just seems to go pretty far. But Boyd would say, well, it's all about Jesus. Uh, Jesus shows us this truth. And this is the truth we follow, even if the text seems to point us in a slightly different direction. And this raises really interesting, tough questions. Before reading this book, I didn't realize there were so many different options and what would follow from it to this difficult question. Now, let let me ask you this, because I know uh, it's in the minds of a lot of people watching. What would option number two, reevaluating the Old Testament, mean for inspiration? 
like how far can we go and say the option, uh, the first option of two that you gave um, where the scholar says there's the textual God, but not say the real biblical God. How much can a, a person who believes in say inspiration begin to view the text that way? Yeah, pretty much everyone in this category rejects inerrancy, or at okay. least inerrancy as traditionally defined. Uh, Sparks says he follows inerrancy, but he defines it differently. Uh, and most of the scholars are going to follow some kind of inspiration, uh, but it's definitely going to be a, a different kind of inspiration uh, than is common in kind of more conservative evangelical circles. So it's all about definitions. Uh, how you define what is inspiration. So Greg Boy in particular has gone on to write more about this. He has a book that came out recently defending his view on this and so on. Uh, and so they do defend inspiration, but they do have to view it differently than it's been traditionally viewed. Although for them, they're going to view that as a strength. They're going to say that conservative evangelicals have misunderstood inspiration. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. They would argue that. Of course, it's not going to be a weakness to them if they think it's true. Okay, let's jump to option three. Okay, again, those uh, of you... One point before oh, yeah. we move on. Go ahead. Um, for those in, in category two, eschatological violence uh, is a problem because if you have a nonviolent God, what then do you do about hell, future judgment, and so on? Uh, and so Cyber in particular has an appendix addressing this. And he goes with annihilationism, um, but he recognizes uh, even annihilationism, there's still some violence connected with that. Like making someone go out of existence, that seems kind of violent of itself. And so his argument is that is outside of the space-time continuum. Therefore, that is not core to God's character. It's what he does inside history. And I, huh. I, I'm not, not convinced by that distinction. I think for... For his view, for a nonviolent God, I think you kind of have to go to universalism, where you don't have eschatological violence. But thinking through all of these other areas about violence, especially eschatology, is an important part of Category 2 as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I had one of our colleagues, J.P. Moreland, on a few weeks ago just answering tough questions, and somebody asked about the God of the Old Testament versus God of the New Testament, and he said, look, Jesus believed in hell. So that was harsher than anything you believe in the Old Testament. So, of course, someone who takes option two is going to have to take a different view than, say, the classic view of hell. That makes sense. I appreciate that you're tying the Old Testament with what happens in the future, trying to have a holistic view to make sense of these. Uh, this is good stuff. Okay, let's go to option three. So, again, for those who join us, we're looking at we're not affirming one position necessarily but looking at different options that people can take when confronted with these violent texts in the Old Testament. One is to reject God, which is the new atheist. Another one is to reevaluate the Old Testament. Uh, maybe these events didn't happen or to read it through a Christocentric lens. The third one is to reevaluate our interpretation of the Old Testament. What does that mean now? Yeah, I sum up view three by basically saying, what problem? If you read the text correctly, there is no problem. And so there's a variety of ways forward, but you deny there's an issue at all. So you say it's not genocide. It doesn't look like genocide. It's just normal life in some way. And just like in view two, there's a variety of ways of doing that. Well, let's talk about some of those. I know St. Augustine said, instead of like going and physically breaking idols, this was like metaphorical or figurative language to breaking the idols in our hearts. So it seems to me one approach would be to spiritualize some of these passages. What's the strength and weaknesses in doing that? 
And the strength in that, uh, there's a strong tradition behind it throughout church history, from the early church fathers all the way up until today. And I think if we're talking about application, there, there's some very important relevance for that kind of view. But our discussion today is about ethics. And the problem with that view is I don't think it goes anywhere near solving the ethical problem because you still have dead Canaanites. It doesn't matter how you apply it to your life, you still have this historical event. So either you have to deny the historicity, which puts you in view two, or you have dead Canaanites and you haven't actually solved the ethical problem at all. So I think it's a non-starter when it comes to the ethical question. So the spiritual spiritualization of this only takes us so far, but can't be divorced from the historical events themselves, dead Canaanites, other violence, without shifting into the second option. Okay, let's look at a, a popular uh, – John Walton's written a number of good, helpful books about the Old Testament Genesis, and he wrote a book on the conquest as well that probably hasn't gotten as much attention as his books on, uh, say, the Genesis account itself – but he suggests, if I understand correctly, that the Israelites were to kill the identity of the Canaanites, but not the people. First off, did I understand that correctly? Flush that out and what may be the strengths and weaknesses of that. Yeah, that's largely uh, his approach. He wrote this book uh, with his son, uh, and there's a lot of helpful material in this. Uh, clearly, he's a scholar who knows the ancient Near East really well, and so the book is full of comparisons with the ancient Near East, uh, and I appreciated uh, much of what he wrote about. Uh, the, the debate is about the word harem. So the Hebrew word harem, it's often translated ban or destroy. What exactly does it mean? And how you translate it into English somewhat prejudices how you think about it. And okay. so Walton argues, no, no, harem doesn't have anything to do with actually killing people. It's removing the identity of the Canaanites. So this is to be a place where Israel lives, serving God, and you can't have Canaanite religion in that place where Israel is going to serve God. And so, however, that Canaanite identity of serving Baal is broken, whether they leave, whether they convert, that's the heart of harem, not actually killing people. Uh, very interesting. So the strengths would be they're not actually killing people. So we're out of the challenge of yeah. the ethics of the Old Testament violent texts. The weakness is, I suspect you're not convinced by the interpretation and the historical genre of the books. Is that fair? Yeah, so the definition of harem is complicated. Um, but I would say even the first point you mentioned, I'm not sure they solve the ethical question because you still have dead Canaanites. Uh, even with this ideal of destroying Canaanite identity, even if harem doesn't mean killing people, you still have Canaanites dying. So it seems like you still need some other ethical arguments along with the kind of things that he's saying. Okay, that's helpful. Let's let's talk about uh, one of the other approaches. And I know a lot of people are thinking, well, what about Paul Copan's writing, Is God a Moral Monster? We're going to get there in two. But first, this is actually a part of one of the arguments that he makes. Could Jericho have been a military base? So it's reinterpreting the traditional understanding that this was a city with men, women, and children, but it was a military base, so would not have had men, women, and children. This is more of a military kind of attack, so to speak. Yeah, this has been popularized by Rick Hess from Denver Seminary, uh, and he argues for it uh, very well. Uh, there's several problems with it that people point out immediately. For example, Jericho has a king. It has walls. There are civilians there, Rahab and her family. And so Hess responds to each one of these uh, military bases. They have walls in the ancient Near East. Uh, there are 
the uh, there are groups that are headed by someone called a melek, a king, even though he's not a king like we would think of. Uh, you can think of Rahab and her family as the one exception. So he talks about each of these problems and uh, shows solutions. Uh, the issue is that's a lot of possibilities being put together. So yes, each one of those is possible, but when you have four or five possible things in a row, it becomes progressively more unlikely. And in addition, if it's a military base, military outpost, that means it's based from someone else. And so there's not really a connection in the Old Testament that we see between Jericho and, say, Jerusalem up in the highlands. Like, it's a military base for for whom? Uh, it, that part's not made clear. And even looking today, military bases tend to have a lot of civilians, quote-unquote. Unless you're on the very front lines, uh, military bases have lots of non-military people. So even if he is correct, I'm not sure it necessarily solves the ethical problem. There's probably still going to be civilians there as well. So bottom line, when we look at Jericho some, Jericho, some attempts have been made to describe it as a military base. You're not convinced by all the possibilities. Even if it was a military base, there would probably still be some innocents who are there. But what about all the other teachings like First Samuel and the other cities that describe men, women, children, and infants? How would this help? Or is it just ultimately doesn't really remove the ethical issues, even if it is correct? Yeah, uh, the Malachite battle in Samuel is another example. Uh, the Battle of Ai, shortly after the Battle of Jericho, has been addressed. Uh, John Monson talks about this, uh, uh, possibly thinking about how that could be a military outpost. But yeah, uh, you bring up the, the other parallels. I'm not sure it helps solve the situation in every single scenario necessarily. One of the books that I, I often recommend people read, especially from an apologetic standpoint, is Paul Copan's Is God a Moral Monster? Great research, very, very thoughtful. And one of the points that he makes is that there probably was some hyperbole that took place in the Old Testament. So when it says wipe out men, women, and children, this is a way of just saying destroy the city with military warfare, but not to be taken literally. And we know they didn't do this because later there are commandments going all the way into the end of the prophets not to intermarry and not to intermix and worship the Canaanite gods. So clearly they weren't successful. Uh, what are the strengths and weaknesses of taking the hyperbole approach to some of these commands? Yeah, so clearly there's hyperbole, uh, whether it's ancient Near East. Um, just this week I had my students in my class read some inscriptions from some ancient Near Eastern kings just to give them a sense for the hyperbole that's often used. And so that's clearly there. And in the Old Testament itself, there is hyperbole. I think the best example, Joshua 10, verse 20, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. So that sounds pretty conclusive. We wiped them out. And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities. You're like, wait, what? I thought you wiped huh. them out. Like, where'd the remnant come from? So clearly, I think there's hyperbole in these texts. Uh, this is how people talk in the ancient Near East, uh, and especially in warfare texts. So we shouldn't be surprised when it shows up in Joshua. The, the drawback is, does it actually solve the ethical problem? And so to some extent, it's a question of how much hyperbole is there? Uh, and so the, the counter argument would be, yeah, there's hyperbole, but... Does it actually solve the ethical problem? Does it mean only military soldiers died uh, and so on? 
And another part of this is if you view it hyperbolically, you tend to connect it with the banishing text. So there are some texts okay. in the Torah that refer to banishing the Canaanites as opposed to haraming them, whatever that harem means. And so many people um, like Copan refer to the banishing. Let's remove them. And so uh, we can use that in the ethical um, quandary. And I think that's definitely a step forward. However, banishing someone from their land is still very ethically problematic. Today, we would call that ethnic cleansing. Uh, and mm. so just because we have ethnic cleansing and not genocide might be a step forward in the ethical discussion, but it's still an ethical problem of itself. And so that means you need other arguments to come alongside to help you with solving the ethical problem with the hyperbole argument. We're, we're getting towards the end of option three. We're going to look at option four and then tie some of these loose ends together. But it sounds like you're kind of taking more of a cumulative case approach to this, that there's a lot of different options we can take, but just need to be aware of the strengths and weaknesses of each. So when it comes to hyperbole, there's clearly hyperbole in the text. That's a great example from Joshua. Completely destroyed him, but then the remnant remains. Yeah. So that helps us in one degree, but that doesn't fully get us outside of the claims themselves, the ethical question. So great stuff. Let's move to option number four. Uh, those of you who are tracking here, if you have questions from this uh, in a little bit, if you want to start loading them in there specifically on the violent text in the Old Testament, we will have uh, Dr. Trim uh, try to make sense of this and give us a little bit of perspective. So again, option one, when we're confronted with these violent texts, is to take the new atheist approach and say, cannot be true, God does not exist. Option number two is to reevaluate the Old Testament, which would typically be saying, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but we have to see the Old Testament through this Christocentric lens, or these stories didn't take place uh, historically. Option three is to say we haven't interpreted these texts correctly over time. Maybe it's hyperbole. Maybe it's metaphorical. Option four is now to reevaluate genocide in the Old Testament itself and to say that it is permissible in this case. So I think I explained that, but tell us what option four is, and then we'll start to unpack some of these. So option four actually agrees with option two in some pretty significant ways because both two and four looks at the Old Testament and says, yeah, there's a lot of violence happening there, and I see that violence connected to God. Now, two, the next step for them is to disconnect God from that violence in some way. Option okay. four says, yeah, I see God being violent, but I'm going to say that that was permissible for that time period for these reasons. And there's a variety of reasons how you can defend those violent actions by God. Well, let's talk about those. One of the big, uh, I think, common approaches people would take is just to take an appeal of mystery. Say, we don't know. We see through a glass darkly. God is God and we are not. It certainly appears unjust. It's certainly jarring. But we don't have a divine perspective, kind of like Job looks at what's happening to him, doesn't have privy to this supernatural conversation going on, chooses to trust God and believe in him and thus is rewarded for it. So why shouldn't the Christian take the mystery approach or what are the strengths and or weaknesses of that? Yeah, the strength of it is it allows us to uh, not claim to be God. Like if we are going to solve everything, we're in a sense putting ourselves in the place of God. The drawback is 
it also prevents us from thinking. It prevents us from having conversation. It prevents us from thinking mm. more deeply about God. If you're going to say that you want to follow God, then are you just going to not think about this part of God that you don't like? Are we only going to take the parts that we do like? Uh, mm. And so we need to be challenged as we follow God. So I would say the mystery approach might be the final kind of spot that you're, you're in, but I don't think it's helpful as the first spot that you go to. Let's think about some other things. And then after you go through hyperbole and these other things and draw on some of these resources, that's kind of where you can end up, the, the mystery um, spot. That, that's really wise, that if we start with mystery, it shuts down conversation, it shuts down historical, ethical, theological explanation, and in some ways could be a lazy response. But when it's all said and done, at the end, we should expect to have a complete answer and totally know why there's going to come a point where we have to trust God. Uh, it's fair. And honestly, for those watching, I understand when sometimes my atheist friends will say to me, they'll say, look, if this is wiping out men, women, and children, is there anything your God would do that would make you not believe in him? And I think that's fair. And of course, the pushback on the other side is to say, if we have reason to believe God exists and he is good in the big picture, would you follow him even if there's texts that are uncomfortable? And I think that's the tension between the two, that both answers have uh, some challenge to them, so to speak. Okay, so the first one is mystery. Another piece that's often brought in is the wickedness of the Old Testament, the wickedness of the Old Testament. Now, before you answer that, Charlie, let me jump to a question here really fast. Uh, this is from Carmen Friesen. She says, why was there murder at all? Doesn't the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not murder. Could you make a distinction between God commanding this and between what humans are commanded to do? Yeah, so the word murder there is most likely referring to illegitimate killing, not all killing uh, together. Uh, and so the the idea is divine commander, if God commanded Israel to kill someone, whether that's capital punishment within the legal system or in a war or something like that, that would not go against the Ten Commandments because that is commanded by God. It's not an illegitimate killing. So there, there's a distinction between killing and murder that would be there. That's great. And I think we even do this without bringing God into this oftentimes. We distinguish between self-defense and, say, war and between murdering somebody. So if God actually gives his commandments and has reasons for it and he's God, the argument would be that it would fall into the category of killing but not murder. In a sense, murder is the unjust of taking somebody's life. So if God is God and he's the one who gives us life, he wouldn't be unjust in such a command. Uh, that's a great question, Carmen. Thank you for asking that. So let's go back to uh, four. Option four, we're basically saying God is justified in, in commanding this, trying to make sense of why. The first one was mystery. And you said mystery is a piece of this, but it should be the end of the conversation, not the beginning. How about the wickedness of the Canaanites? Clay Jones, uh, who used to teach at Bio and Talbot, has done some excellent work in this area, really surfacing some of the depravity of the Canaanite people. Um, what do we know about them, morally speaking, and how does that play into this question? Yeah, so there are several biblical texts that talk about the wickedness of the Canaanites, uh, especially in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, and so this would be a clear evidence that they're being judged for their sin, which is a common biblical theme. So it seems pretty straightforward defense of what God is doing. 
However, it gets a little complicated. Uh, primarily in the book of Joshua, Canaanite sin is never referred to. So you would expect if this is why Joshua is conquering the land, why is Joshua not referring to it more often or even at all in the book of Joshua? Hmm. Uh, and then other scholars like the Waltons in particular, they argue that the text condemning the Canaanites actually don't condemn them. Uh, and so there's scholarly arguments that maybe those texts aren't as clear. And then if you want to make the argument that Canaanites are worse sinners, I think that's a really hard argument to make, and most people don't go that direction. So if you say they're sinners, but not necessarily worse than other sinners, then you have the question of, well, why them? And so you have this question of fairness. Like, yes, they're sinners, but did they just like lose the lottery? Like, why is it that these sinners are picked on and other sinners are not? And so it's a, a question of equality in judgment at that point as well. Now, don't we see in the Old Testament a sense, like say with the flood, and we're gonna we're gonna come to this in a minute, where obviously some hyperbole is taking place, but every thought of every person all the time is wicked. Clearly, the text wants us to think that they came to a place a place of utter wickedness. Now, when we look at the Canaanites, I don't have the sources in front of me, but I know the arguments are made about like child sacrifice and incredible sexual perversion. At some point, the argument would be God has to come in and judge, and there was a greater sense of evil that was going on here. I think it's Genesis five sixteen, where God says to Abraham, I'll give you that land, but not until the sin of the Amorites has run its course. Now, my understanding is that means he's giving them as much time to repent and turn until the sin just gets as grievous as it could be. Is that an understanding, and how would that context uh, fit into this larger question? Yeah, so that's Genesis 15. I think it's Genesis 15, 16. So like the Waltons, for example, would say that's not sin. That is That refers to something else. So that they're a minority, but that is an argument against hmm. some of those particular texts. But once again, just saying they're sinners, are you saying they're worse sinners? Because I can appeal to all kinds of other ancient Near Eastern empires and kingdoms who act in pretty horrible ways comparable to the Canaanites. Uh, and then when you talk about the Canaanites specifically, uh, I think some of their bad behavior can be overblown. So there continues to be discussion mm. about the child sacrifice uh, and some of the other evidence. Uh, it, it's, some of it is with an ungenerous eye towards the Canaanites. Mm. Uh, and so I think some of that wickedness can be overblown. And so you know, clearly they're sinful, but we're all sinful. And so you get back to the question of why, why them as compared to other people? Yeah. But yes, you do have the sense of Genesis looking forward to, uh, like we're going to give you lots of time to repent and turn and they apparently don't and so on. Now, I know one of the pieces that's brought up, brought up here is that when you look at, I think it's Second uh, Kings at 17 and 25, you look at the exile of, the Jews from the land where they were treated with just the same kind of harshness and judgment when the Babylonians and the Assyrians come in. So I could imagine somebody saying, well, God might not be judging all nations like this, but he's not making an exception for his own people. How does that fit into this question? Yeah. So one argument here, basically God's not racist. It's not that God is opposed to the Canaanites. God's opposed to sin wherever he finds it. Uh, and this is pretty dramatic contrast to other gods in the ancient Near East, uh, where we have Yahweh, say, defeating Egypt in the Exodus, but then the next thing he does is he attacks his own people in the wilderness. That's just 
unfathomable for an ancient Near Eastern god. But why is he doing this? Because sin is the issue. It's not foreign nations. It's not that you're not Israel. It's sin, and he's going to conquer sin wherever he's going to find it. So when Israel's sinful, like he said with the exile, he's going to judge them in the same way. Mm. The response to that would be, well, this is just making it worse. You're saying not only does God judge <laughs> the Canaanites, you're saying God judges everyone. Uh, isn't this like harsh for everyone? Uh, and so some of those questions of, are we really actually making it any better by using this kind of argument? What about the uniqueness of the land? So tied to the first point, you would say that they judged, you know, why are the Canaanites uniquely uh, singled out? Because there's other nations that are as wicked, if not arguably more wicked. I know one response will say, well, this is a land that God was using, so to speak, to prepare for his son to come through. And there had to be, I hate to use the word cleansing because that's going to bring a whole bunch of baggage with it. But there was a moral kind of, we need a, a nation that can survive and thrive and God can bring his person through, his son through, that's going to bring redemption to the entire world. How much of this is tied to the nature of the land itself and God's act of redemption he was doing through his son, Jesus? Yeah, so this point, in a sense, answers the previous point. Why the Canaanites? Well, it's about the land. And so, in a sense, hmm. this is going to be God's dwelling on earth, uh, focused most intensely on the temple, but the entire land will be God's place as well. And so this relates to the Walton's point of denying Canaanite identity. Let's remove Canaanite religion, because this is going to be a place where Yahweh dwells, and we can't have Baal followers living in this land. And so... That is a strong argument, I think, for answering why Canaanites and not others. Well, it's about this particular land that God is giving to Israel. And the response to that would then be, well, that seems kind of unfair. Like, they just lost the lottery. Like, your land got chosen, so you're, <laughs> you're going to have to get out. Uh, and once again, it sounds similar to ethnic cleansing and, and so on. Um, so there's some good theological explanatory power there. But how far does it help us with the ethics of the situation might be questionable. Now, one of the interesting things in this discussion is people jump to the story of Jericho, uh, the stories that we're discussing, but I don't hear as much discussion about, say, the flood and the exodus. And it seems like even if we can make all these passages into hyperbole or reinterpret them, you still have all these other teachings in the Old Testament that seem pretty hard to escape, especially when you look at how Jesus and the apostles talked about the Old Testament and the people in the Old Testament seeming that they were real. So how does bringing the flood into this, does it help it because it's not unique? Does it make it harder? How does this shape the conversation? Uh, yes. So the, the plus side is it allows some comparisons. And generally, Christians have less problems with the flood. I mean, we put it on the walls of nurseries and stuff, right? Like we, we have our kids play with <laughs> Noah's Ark. And so there's a sense of we're fine with the flood. Why then do we have a problem with the Canaanite destruction? So partially it's just we have this kind of blinker thinking about the flood where we don't realize just how bad it is in a sense. Like God killed the entire world. This is like world aside or something. There's not even a name for that. And so once again, in a sense, it's making it, worse, because now we're going to defend this limited destruction by appealing to this greater destruction. But the other disconnect between the two events is, one is God doing the judgment himself, and with the Canaanite destruction, it's God telling his people to do the destruction for him. And so then there's 
questions about what effect would it have on the Israelite soldiers, like PTSD concerns and so on. Uh, and so adding in the human responsibility does create some distinction between the floods and the Canaanite destruction. Hmm. Okay, for those listening, we got about 10 minutes left. We're going we're gonna to honor your time, uh, Charlie. But I want to give everyone a sense of what we're doing here. You're not giving yeah, your... Can, can oh. I add in one more thought? Uh, yeah, kind please of do. Parallel with the, the flood in Exodus is the eschatological parallel. So the, the judgment at the end of time, you can think of that as a parallel for Canaanite destruction as well. And so we see positive depictions of the land of Canaan as kind of new heavens, new earth, and so on. So if you flip that, you can think of the destruction of the Canaanites as, in a sense, preparatory for eternal judgment. Uh, and so there's some mm. parallels with eschatology. Uh, scholars mm. sometimes talk about it like intrusion ethics, where eschatology intrudes into history. Uh, and so it's not like the Canaanites are innocent bystanders and just completely free of guilt. Like They are judged just like everyone else is judged, but their judgment comes earlier in a sense. So common grace is removed for them. And so many people appeal to this kind of parallel as well. The problem, of course, there is you, there's certain assumptions about eschatology. And if you don't share those assumptions, then that argument's not going to work very well to, to bring in. Gotcha. That makes sense. I, I'm curious, why do you think the biblical authors don't give any clear justification where they try to answer this? Now, I think there's some hints in the text, like Genesis 15, 16, sin and Amorites running its course, Rahab being spared. Uh, I We see some of the evil of them. Like There are certain things worked in the text, and this isn't just a modern question. Some moral questions are, are modern that pop up just because of the culture we live in. But Oregon and Augustine, I mean, people have been thinking about this question for a long time. And I realize this is guessing, but you study the Old Testament. Do you have any sense of why they wouldn't lay out a reason for this? Yeah, most of the scholars we talked about for the past hour would probably say, well, there are clear texts, and those are the ones I appeal to. Uh, so you could say, well, there are clear texts. It's a matter of defining what they are. Uh, so maybe there's multiple clear texts, but there's okay. somewhat not there's somewhat intention. And so thinking about how these texts work together is the complicated part. But an answer, short answer to your question, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Okay, I, I think that's totally fair. Um, here's a couple questions that that have come in. It says, Dr. Trim, at what point do you take out technicality and talk about the heart from stone to flesh? I think that's more of a theological question and step away from some of the debates about what these words mean and shift to that theological one. How do you approach that? Yeah, for me, as an Old Testament scholar, I tend to start with the weeds. I start with the text and try and figure out how it all fits together. But certainly, I don't want to stay there. I want to know, how does this inform me about the God that I serve? And so I want to make sure that we do this detail work, but then connect it with theology, connect it with the God that I serve today in the present time. And how to make that transition is difficult, um, because scholars do it different ways. Sometimes scholars will bring the theology to focus on the text, or do you bring the text to focus on the theology? And, and to some extent, that is the question of some of these debates, is which direction do you go? Do you start with the theology? Mm. Do you start with the text? And so that is part of the discussion of itself, is thinking through how to make that transition. For me, I tend to go from text to theology, but that's a much bigger question as well. That makes sense, being a scholar, that you would start there. 
Uh, how, how have your views on this changed over time? Because you've been studying this now probably for decades. How have some of your approaches to this and views changed? Yeah, it's certainly gotten more complicated. So I've realized all the arguments. Uh, so growing up, I was just, I assumed view four and I assumed all the other views were just wrong. But I, I've come to realize view four has a lot of issues, a lot of problems, and, and the other views have a lot of strengths. Uh, and so that's probably the major thing that I've been struggling with is just how good many of these views are. So as you mentioned, clearly as an evangelical, I'm going to reject view one and view two. Uh, I, I have problems with this because of views about the Bible and so on. But even that, there's some, there's some good evidence for some views there. Uh, views three and four, there's a lot of a lot of good points in both of them. And so just the the, the vast complexity uh, of the issue is something that has really come to me as I've been studying it more. I found the same thing when I dive into the weeds on certain technical issues. But I think there's also a sense as scholars where we also try to keep things simple as we can. So if someone comes to you at church, say a mom comes to you and says, Dr. Trim, Dr. Trim, my daughter just got online and she's a teenager and she's reading these these stories of the Old Testament. Atheists are saying God can't exist. How on earth can this be in the Bible? Help me help her make sense of this. How would you respond in that kind of setting? Yeah, I'd want her to, I want to uh, give her my book that I haven't written yet. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but you can, uh, you can address a variety of topics. Um, you know, it depends on, is, does she want a book to read? Is there things you can talk about? Um, I find trying to find some kind of common ground is really helpful. Uh, so why would God be violent at all? And then connecting it with justice. God cares about injustice. He wants injustice to stop. Miroslav Wolf makes a great argument uh, about a truly and consistently nonviolent God would allow injustice to flourish. Uh, and clearly, nobody wants mm. that. And so kind of think through the bigger pictures of why God is violent. So we haven't discussed that in this particular category, because we're focusing on this specific issue. But you can go to broader categories of, okay, why is God violent at all? And what's going on? What does that tell us about him? And so on. That, that's really interesting. With a, with a young person who's just beginning to think about these things, you're going to say, okay, let's go to God's character first. Let's go what we know God is like, what God desires for the world, and then we can begin to make sense of these passages rather than running to them very quickly and giving a response that uh, might not have that kind of context. You teach students at, at, at a at Biola University undergrads, and you and I are colleagues there. I teach grads in our apologetic program, but also an undergrad class. And I'd be curious, where what's the common responses you tend to get with students through this? Are they unsettled because there's not an easier answer? Do they lean towards certain and reject others? And for those of you watching, most of you probably know, but Biola is a Bible-believing institution. We embrace inerrancy. So options of saying the Old Testament didn't happen are out. Rejecting God are out. We're open to reinterpretations of the Old Testament if they match the data. And also trying to make sense of why God would command this. So what are some of the common responses from students once you've walked through these different options in an entire class on divine violence? Yeah, so I give them a, a final paper, which is basically defend the violence of God in the Old Testament. And I'm not going to grade you on getting the right answer. I just want you to know what the arguments are, to be able to defend it, and then respond to the counter arguments. 
So I find that students tend towards categories three and four, uh, probably 50-50. Hyperbole is a really popular one, but category okay. four is really popular. And a handful who appeal to category two uh, as well. Of course, we don't make our students sign doctrinal statements, so there's plenty of students here who reject inerrancy and so on. And so um, there are a handful that take category two. So I find it's it's kind of all across the board. This is super helpful. I loved reading that early draft of your book. And some people are asking when your book comes out, you haven't even written the rest of it yet. You have a rough draft. You have pages to go. So it's probably 18 to 24 months out from being published. So those of you who are listening today kind of got a special insight of how to approach this. And when it comes out again in a couple of years, we'll have you back on and we'll talk about it again and we'll do a blog interview and we'll spread the word out. Cause I think based on some of the questions and responses here, this is really, really helping people. So my last question, um, you mentioned how this was simpler for you and then has become more complex over time. How do you process that personally? Because that's kind of like a childlike faith in one sense, which we want to embrace. But also life is is sticky. What's your advice for people looking at this saying, gosh, I tuned into the show and I just wanted you to give me three reasons why God calls, allows genocide and move on. And you're saying there's a little bit more than this. What's your advice? Let's start with what's your advice for Christians? Yeah, I would say think about it. So obviously I'm a prof. Of course, I'm going to say that. Uh, dive into it. If it's something that bothers you, of course, uh, think about it more. And don't expect the easy answers. Uh, this is God we're talking about. Like You can't just box it up into a nice, simple solution. And so being aware of that from the beginning, I think, is really helpful. Um, maybe two final points. One is, I think there's multiple good options. Uh, and hmm. so even though I didn't defend one particularly, I actually do lean towards one, even though I didn't say that necessarily. But I think there's okay. multiple good options. And just knowing... It's not like we have to find the one right answer per se. There's, there's good options, and you have freedom to kind of pick those. Um, so I think that is helpful and freeing in a sense. Yeah. I want to, it ends with a parallel from the New Testament. In, in John uh, 6, Jesus tells the crowd, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a whole bunch of people leave because they're greatly offended, um, obviously, because that's pretty dramatic language. And after that, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And I paraphrase their response to something along the lines of, I kind of want to, but the other options aren't any better. I don't know where I would go. And so to some extent, my response to this uh, issue in the Old Testament is something like this, where I say to God, I don't particularly like what I see. Like, I might write it differently if I was God, but there's a reason I'm not God, and the other options aren't any better. And so I'm going to continue following you, even if I still have this somewhat some measure of internal tension as I continue to follow you uh, in this journey. Kai, that is that is so helpful. I think in my experience, a lot of young people who will disengage their faith, they come across these kinds of challenges, aren't aware of the different options. We're told everything just simply fits into nice categories. And you're saying there is a good option of all the options are out there in terms of worldview Christianity makes the most sense, but this is a tough question. Let's not give simplistic answers and let's learn to live in the tension. I think that's really honest. I think that's freeing for Christians. And many of the atheists I know, I think would at least respect that because you're not whitewashing over and giving a simplistic answer for something that arguably is one of the greatest challenges that people raise to the scriptures 
themselves. Now, some people are asking for uh, your position, but I know you're not going to defend that here. Maybe when we have you back on, we can talk about your uh, the position you take when the book comes out. But those of you again who just joined us, we've been looking at different options we have of how Christians can approach the question of violence in the Old Testament. And Dr. Charlie Trim has been teaching a class on this for years. He has a book coming out, probably 18 to 24 months, and walks us through four different options. There's strengths to some, and there's also weaknesses to them. So hope you've been enjoying this. And by the way, Dr. Trim and I both teach at Biola. And if you like this content, we would love to have you at Talbot. Love to have you at Biola, in particular in our apologetics program. We have a class on this that we teach, as well as some of the other toughest ethical moral scientific questions we have a master's and we're the top rated graduate program uh, if you look in the information below we can uh, link you to that we'd love to have you in our program or if you say you know what i'd love to find out more information I'm not ready for masters we actually have a certificate program where we'll send you lectures and just real simple assignments and kind of grade them just to keep you on track so you can learn apologetics and theology formally there's a significant discount code uh, below if that's helpful make sure you hit the subscribe button because we have some other interviews coming up for example craig evans one of the leading new testament scholars in the world has written a 600 page book on jesus and the manuscripts and it's going to give us the first interview here next week we're talking with a friend of mine billy hallowell making a defense for the existence of demons because he's done an investigative report. So a lot of interesting stuff coming up. Make sure you subscribe. Again, uh, Dr. Trim, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, hang on, don't leave. Everybody else, we really appreciate you joining us and hope we'll see you back here soon.